everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Alison Grunendike. Well, you can grab your Bible. If you don't have one, there are extras in the back Uh, tables there. You definitely want to get it. It's a long passage today that we're just going to stay in together. Uh, So get one of those. Um, If you have uh, missed the last couple of talks, I'll just catch you up to speed really quick. We're in a series on Daniel, and it's really all about how to live in exile as the people of God. And maybe we don't daily feel like we're in exile. It's not an acute reality, but I would say that it is not unlike uh, just the cultural moment that we find ourselves in right now. Uh, It's just an unapologetically secular uh, space. Anything goes, you do you. These are some of the messages in this post-Christian environment that we're getting. And uh, people are maybe spiritual, but not godly. And that's, that's just a phrase that has come to me this week as I've prepped, the difference between being spiritual and being godly. And so we've just been exploring how do we follow Jesus together in this world? And like I said, if you haven't caught Amos's teachings, I would encourage you to go back and check those out. Uh, but basically, there's two options that seem easier than the Jesus third way that we're going to you know, try to sink into today. Uh, the first would be that we are just separatists. He, he used this word to describe a way of being and doing life where we only surround ourselves with Christian education, Christian marketplace, Christian neighbors, um, and that is the way that we keep the outside influence from rubbing off on us too much, right? And then the other way, uh, Amos called syncretism, or this idea that we just sync up with the culture, the values, the beliefs that the culture has, and, you know, maybe we continue to profess with our words that we're following Jesus, and that we believe in him, but really our life kind of looks no different from everyone else around us. And so, Of course, like I said, both these options are easier in a lot of ways. They're more straightforward ways to live. And it's tempting to want to go to one side or the other. But Jesus gives us this third way um, where he says love and truth are held together, right? And you're called to be in the world but not of it. And this story in Daniel that we're going to jump into is really a great example of that today. So... Daniel chapter 6, open up there if you haven't already. Um, This is a super famous passage, so a little bit challenging in some ways to teach because it's not new, because we've all heard it before. Um, And if you're like me, definitely acted it out on the little flannel graphs in uh, Sunday school. Although, yeah, there there was little flannel fire and little flannel lions, and, you know, you can get really creative with that. Um, So we're actually going to start at the end, right? And I don't think it's going to be a spoiler alert that Daniel lives, okay? Uh, Hopefully you know that part. God does indeed rescue him. So we're going to start at the end 
um, and dive in here. But would you stand just to honor God's word as it's read? We're just going to read together verses 25 to 27 in chapter 6 of Daniel. So this says, Then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. You can be seated. It's just pretty hopeful words this morning. I know, for many of us that are looking for something to ground ourselves in, especially this week. And it's really pretty remarkable transformation that you see um, the heart of King Darius go through, right? He had acquired this huge empire. It's actually one of the largest empires to date in history. It was a ginormous piece of land and people that were under his control. And, you know, the gods of his country really were winning the day. They were winning people's hearts to power, sex, and money. Um, and that is how his influence was spreading. And so it's really a miracle that in the shutting of the lion's mouth, King Darius finally understands like, this is the one true worthy God. This is who everyone's going to follow. And he actually says that, he decrees it over his people. We are going to fear the God of Daniel, not all of the rest of the pagan gods that they had been worshiping. So let's just back up and see, how does this really unfold? So starting in Daniel 6, verse 1, that's page 904 in your Bibles here, says, Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. So those would be like governors, you can kind of think in, that, in those terms. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high offices and protect the king's interests. Uh, other translations here say that the king might not suffer loss. And again, we're talking about financial loss, loss of power, loss of land, loss of people. He wants to ensure that everyone is playing by his rules and following the country's code of conduct and, and morals so that he can keep his power. But it says that Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way that Daniel was handling government affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful always responsible and completely trustworthy. 
So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. Again, another translation says, we're going to have to find some dirt about his God. They say we're going to have to go and attack his God. We can't attack his character, so now it's time to turn on his God. So the administrators and high officers went to the king, and they said, long live King Darius. We are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so that it cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. And then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king, and they reminded him about his law. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Yes, the king replied, that decision stands. It is an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. Then they told the king, that man, Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. And hearing this, the king was deeply troubled, and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. And in the evening, the men went together to the king. And you can almost hear like the just taunting voice of these, of these officials at this point, right? They come back to the king. They know he's trying to figure out a loophole. And they say, no, your majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, here it is again, no law that the king signs can be changed. You're not getting out of this. We're making you stick to your word. So at last, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. And the king said to him, may your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. This is a long story. We're going to pause here for just a minute. So what do you notice, right? Daniel is at the top of his game in his line of work. And the king is getting ready to promote him. And he's going to be over the entire empire because he's done such excellent work. And of course, this is making his coworkers extremely jealous. They want him out of there. And so they're trying to dig up dirt on 
Daniel. And, you know, they're assuming he's done something shady at some point. Because they're like, haven't we all? We all do this. We all cut corners and lie and cheat occasionally and, and fudge things. So, like, Daniel's got to have done that. We can find it. But they can't, right? They can't find grounds to accuse him. And when they discover that Daniel has actually come upon this uh, promotion honestly, they get even more enraged. This is like more fuel to their fire to find something wrong with this man. And like I said earlier, they say, well, if we can't attack his character, then we're going to attack his God. So Daniel has earned himself some serious enemies, right? And... uh, he is staying faithful to God, and his, his co-workers are so manipulative that they're actually trying to trap the king in making this law. It's almost like a constitutional monarchy a little bit here where they're saying, you know, you can rule and have power, but really it's only within the confines of what the rest of the leaders want to do, and we are, we're going to make you enforce this thing and kind of trick you into seeing the political gain that this might be for him. That's, that's the kind of the angle they're taking this to get him to sign this law into uh, being. And so basically, this king, he can change his mind, but it would kind of be at a pretty high cost to him. It would be at the cost of his reputation if he went back on his word. So he feels stuck. And we all know that this law ends Daniel in a den of lions. And the thing that struck me as I was reading this this week was this happened all because Daniel prayed. That is all he did. He prayed, right? So last week, we talked about the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that is about a sin that those three guys were not willing to commit, right? They were not willing to bow down to another god. But in this instance, Daniel is getting punished for a practice, a spiritual practice that he's not willing to omit from his life. This is pretty amazing. And Daniel has been in exile since he's a teenager. He's been praying this way for decades and decades of his life. And he says, no, I know that me being in conversation and communication with my God, morning, noon, and night, this is what forms my heart while I'm in exile. This is the thing that keeps me not shifting away from who I'm really called to be and starting to look like the rest of the culture. He knows that he needs to put his body, right, put himself in a posture towards Jerusalem, it says, to orient his heart toward the truth And he does this three times a day. And it says he opens his window. Did you catch that? He says he opens his window, and this is our way of knowing. He is praying publicly. He's in his house, but he's making it known. He's not not disintegritous. He's living with consistency in his life. He's saying, I'm the same person in my home as I am out in my workplace. That is what this is, is showing us. And so what I want you guys to see is this law that the king made, this was not an attack on Daniel's religion. It was not an attack on his set of beliefs. This was an attack on his devotion to God. 
And this is just so instructive for us, I think, in this season that, man, haven't we all felt that? There are times it's like, no one's really going to care if I do or don't read my Bible, if I do or don't sing worship in my house, if I do and don't pray with my kids before bed. Like, I'm not getting persecuted for those things. But those are the things that are about our devotion to God, to staying in his loving care. And um, did you guys know Daniel's really old at this point in the story? He's probably, scholars think he's been serving the king. He's, he's served actually a couple different kings. He's seen a couple different kingdoms. Probably serving for about 70 years, which means Daniel's 80. He's 80 at this point, right? And so I'm reading this going like, oh, this is an easy one. Like, it's not that hard. Just take a month off of praying, right? Or just like shut the window or mumble a little bit or pray and whisper like, come on, Daniel, you're 80 years old. You clearly don't have like your career that you're worried about building anymore, right? Like, it's not like he's worried about probably financial stability and, and all these things. So I'm thinking, this is not that hard. Just change it up for a little bit. Just go under the radar. No big deal. But he doesn't, and he knows. He knows the penalty is death because the text says when he heard that this was the new law, he went straight home and prayed and did his routine. And I just love it. Did you guys catch it in, I think it's verse 10, It says, he went home and knelt down as usual. That word just stood out to me, as usual. With his windows open towards Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done. So what does this mean for us, right? How does Daniel make a stand against the cultural tide? He doesn't change a thing. He just does what he has always done. He continues to pray. He continues to give thanks to God. And he continues to ask for God's help. Like I said, he doesn't stop praying. That's probably what I would have been tempted to do. Um, Neither does he start praying to Darius, which also would have gotten him off the hook, right? Um, And he doesn't make a scene. And I think... For me, when I'm attacked, when my character's under attack, when my God is under attack, I am tempted to like be more obnoxious <laughs> in, my, um, in my words and in my behavior, right? So you would think like Daniel could have said, well, fine, I'm doubling down on this. You say I can't pray. I used to pray three times a day. Now I'm praying six times a day or 12 times a day. I'm just going to pray all day. I'm not going to do my work for you anymore. I'm just going to sit and pray. Or, hey, I'll get a megaphone. My window's already open. I'll just trumpet it out and be really obnoxious. <laughs> To make a point, right? Am I the only one that's tempted to do that when you're like, okay, okay, I see some people smirking like, this is totally what I like to do because I'm like a fight person, not a flight person in the face of threat. Okay, so again, I'm just thinking, you know, Daniel, the king's not asking you to commit murder. This is not a serious thing. Just give it a break. This is clearly ridiculous. Um, And the penalty is probably going to be death because who goes in a lion's den and it goes well for them? No one at this point. 
And I know, like, we're not faced with literal lion's dens, but we do have threats coming at us, right? And Daniel says, I know how this is likely going to end for me, and I will not give up my prayer. And here's a side note that I learned. What's up with the lion's den, right? This was just a super barbaric legal system that they're operating in here, and apparently kings and people high up just had lions, around, which sounds like a terrible idea, but this is what they did. And so it was a common thing to throw your enemies or people who didn't obey to the lions. And what I learned is this is one form of basically trial by something they call innocence by ordeal. Danny's shaking his head. Some of you know about this, right? So water ordeal was a common thing that they did in that time. So basically, if you are accused of committing a crime, they would take you and throw you in a river or in some body of water, and if you lived, that was the sign that the gods thought you were innocent and that the gods cleared your name. And if you died, then clearly you were guilty. And that was how their legal system worked. And I am thankful that we are not quite there anymore, right? Phew. Yeah. So I want you to keep this in mind as we pick the story back up. That is how the gods would have cleared someone's name was by innocence of ordeal. So we're picking back up uh, verse 17 through the end here. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. And then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting, and he refused his usual entertainment, and he couldn't fall asleep at all that night. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. And when he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? And I love this because I can just imagine Daniel, like, trumpeting out his response here. Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me. For I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed, and he ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted his God. So, you know, I've been thinking, again, this past week, what, what was it that allowed Daniel to stand so firm in what could have been just a really easy thing to let slide? What was it about him? And I think there's just tons of applications here. I could spend a long time going into all of them, but I just want to point out a few for us this morning. And the first thing is, I think it has something to do with his name something to do with his name. You see, people without God are just self-namers. 
This starts way back in Genesis, Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. They actually say, I think I've got it here. They say, come and let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Make a city with a tower that reaches so high and make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So it's just like in Babylon, this message about collecting and storing up wealth, building something sturdy, something external, something that shows the world, I'm worth something, I have a name, I'm valuable, I can do things in this world. And I just think we're tempted to believe this, right? And so Daniel is actually giving us this this call, this invitation to know who we are, to, to plant our identity in Jesus. And I, I just know, like, I'm tempted to reestablish a name for myself all the time. And if I don't constantly hear from God, like, you are my daughter whom I love, you are chosen, you are safe, you are secure. There's nothing that can happen that will separate us. If I don't hear that in prayer, then yeah, I want to name myself mom and pastor and artist and scientist and all these other external things that would give me validation that I could be something, you know, in the eyes of the world. But Daniel let God name him. And this is what I think is so cool. This whole book is full of all these funky names, right? It's things we can't really pronounce. And it's the kings renaming the people. And it's one of their ways of saying, like, this is the assimilation process. You, you act differently. You give your money differently. You work differently. But, hey, now you actually don't even get to, get to be the name that you were given at birth. You have to be what I call you. And King Nebuchadnezzar, who's out of the picture at this point, right? Darius is on the throne. But King Nebuchadnezzar in the past had renamed Daniel Belteshazzar. And what that means is, O lady, protect my king. Right? Real, oh, so good, you guys. O lady, protect my king or protect the king. And Daniel actually never calls himself this the whole time. He doesn't refer, he, I mean, he doesn't mind that other people are trying to give him this label, but he's not going to call himself that. And I just think, what, what a contrast to the name Danny L., which is my God is my judge, right? And so Daniel, in continuing to say, this is who I am, I am Daniel, says, no, king, my highest priority is not protecting you. It is serving my God, and my God is going to judge. And, and Daniel knows that God is judging his heart. He knows that he's starting on the inside. He's looking at the inside of who he's becoming, at his character. And that is why, over a lifetime, he just becomes this really faithful guy. One of the other things that I think is important when we're looking at this text is to understand the difference between power and influence. Right? Power and influence. Power 
tends to come top down. It tends to be very manipulative. It tends to say like, get in line, do it my way, my way or the highway. But influence, I think, is the better word for what I see Daniel doing here. He's influential. He's influencing uh, the people around him, and it's coming center out. It's coming from the core of who he is. And so I just think if we're going to be a community that has influence, we've got to really know our names, church. We've got to know that we are Christians, and that actually means something for our vocation, for our calling, for the ways that we wake up and live our lives together. And I, I love that, you know, a lot of people think like the ultimate goal of Christianity or being a good Christian is to end up being a pastor or a missionary. And here we have Daniel saying, that's not it at all. The kingdom of God is coming through his life in his workplace because even though he has the gifts of being a prophet, clearly, he's, he's lumped in the books of the Bible with these other prophets, he's clearly prophetic, but he has listen to God and the call in his life to work in the secular workplace. The other thing I see here is just this idea of fidelity. I have just clung to this word lately. I love it. It just, it means faithfulness, right? But there's something deeper to me when I say fidelity that is, that has touched me in a different way, but it's this idea of faithfulness. And Again, not faithfulness to my own life. Daniel wasn't faithful to his own life because he was going down. This is faithfulness to God, not the secular dream. You know, the culture is telling us to basically be conditioned to be faithful to the things that win. To believe that the only wealth that we have in this life is our money to believe that the only beauty that you have is your physical body and the looks that you have, or to believe that the only love you have is what your friends think and say about you. That is what the cultural message is. And guys, we see that if that is is the only thing we have, then when those things are taken away, we just crumble. We just crumble. And if we're strong enough to say, you know what, I know that those things actually aren't really what define me, and we just say no to that message, then the world just says you're crazy. They see that as our greatest weakness, not as our greatest strength. And this is Daniel's greatest strength. He says, I'm just going to be faithful to Jesus. I, I really think, like for me, what does fidelity to Jesus look like? goodness, it looks like managing my finances well. It looks like not going into terrible debt and not overspending. It looks like showing up for my family. It looks like being a really patient mom and a respectful and loving wife and a good friend. And we just shouldn't expect that that's going to be easy or that we don't have loss that comes from doing those things, I guess is is the other message here, right? Like, This is what Jesus means by being in the world and not of it. Fidelity to Jesus actually might mean that you lose things and that people misunderstand and hate you. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it probably will. You're gonna be misunderstood. I think we've got this passage up on the screen from John 15. But check out Jesus' words here. He says, if you belong to the world... 
It would love you as its own. And as it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world, and this is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. So, just like Daniel, when the misunderstanding and the accusation and the hatred comes at us, guys, we just have to do the next right thing. I think that's what it is. We just have to do the next right thing. Because the truth is, we don't belong here. Just like this passage just told us, right? This isn't our true home. And Daniel knows that, and that's why he's so effective. That's why he's so effective in Babylon, is that he knows about a place greater than this, and that's where he belongs. And so, of course, just to to wrap up here, guys, this is where the story of Daniel is all headed. This is a foreshadowing that Jesus is the true Daniel. And you know, again, if you learned this story like I did in Sunday school, where the moral of the story is, if you just trust God enough that he's just going to rescue you from all the bad stuff, (laughs) right? And I hear people laughing because we all know that doesn't match reality, right? This is not how we live. Tons of terrible things happen to us as people of God Uh, just because we're human. And sometimes they happen to us even more because we're following Jesus. So I I just think that there's an invitation today to hear this story of Daniel, not as the simplified trust God and everything will go well for you and you'll be rescued. A story of Daniel is here to point us to the gospel. And that miracle of God shutting the mouth of the lion is actually a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God, how God wants life to be now on earth and how it's going to be in the next earth and the new heavens. This is a story about what being literally saved, what our salvation means for us today, but also what our salvation means for us into the future. And you see, like, roaring lions are used throughout the Bible as the symbol of chaos. It's just chaos in the natural order, right? And there's suffering and there's danger. This is just inherent to how the natural order of things is in life. And so I want you to see the shutting of the lion's mouth in Daniel. That is exactly what the prophet Isaiah is referring to in Isaiah 11, where he says, one day the lion will lay down with the lamb and a little child will lead them. It's a famous Christmas passage. We'll probably look at it again this Advent, right? One day when all is made right, when the kingdom is here, the lion will lay down with the lamb. He will not want to consume the lamb. He will not be aggressive or hostile toward it. That will end and they will live in harmony. That's what this is pointing us to. And I just love when the king checks on Daniel, Daniel responds, my God sent his angel, right? His angel to shut the lion's mouth. And actually, 
Nebuchadnezzar said the same thing when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fire. He said, that is the angel of God, and he looks like a god. And so there's lots of reference to angels in the Bible, angels in the, in the generic, but I think one way to read this, I think, is that this is the angel of God. So this is actually the pre-incarnate Jesus showing up for Daniel, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we know Jesus also went into his own den. Did you guys catch that? Verse 17, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and then the king sealed the stone with his own royal seal, and the seals of his nobles, so that no one could rescue Daniel. This is eerily similar to the story of Jesus, where the the stone is rolled over his tomb to say, no one, this guy has no hope. He's as dead as dead, and he's got a giant rock sealing him in there. And then we, we know on the cross, and it's, it's foreshadowed in Psalm 22, that Jesus says, I'm in anguish. And he says, roaring lions will open their mouths against me. That's Psalm 22. So here's the good news today. Jesus is not doing the rescuing from the sidelines. I hope you see that. Right? He went into the fire with the three men. And it would have been super easy for the power of God to be put on display and to save Daniel just by changing the guards' minds, just by saying, like, nah, just don't throw him in there. Right? But he doesn't. He allows Daniel to go in with the lions, but he comes out petting them. <laughs> Because pre-incarnate Jesus is there. He's with us. He's with us in the fire. He's with us in the trial. He does the rescuing from a place of intimacy. And I think that is the beautiful thing that we are invited to respond to this morning. So let's pray. Holy Spirit. God, we just thank you that your word is not hidden, that you are a self-revealing God, and that this is a revealing text to us this morning, that we can see your plan for standing in opposition to the truth is just to root ourselves so, so deeply in connection and communication with you so that we can just do the next right thing. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just come and bind up wounds, bind up grief. Meet us as we sing and love us today. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.